0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
0: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive
2: Thoughts. Stand up for Christ i believe we are never happier than when we have plenty to do idleness is the mother of vexation
1: every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today's sermon is titled a call to the depressed
0: it was preached by charles spurgeon charles spurgeon is a name that i feel like everyone who has studied you know christianity and the bible even a little bit is familiar with mm-hmm. if nothing else Uh, You know that your preacher or your pastor, whomever you go to see on church on Sunday, has definitely dropped that person's quote and said, and that was by Charles Spurgeon. And it always sounded profound. If you've been on Facebook or any kind of social media, you'll see Charles Spurgeon quotes always take off. And there's something about the way Charles Spurgeon worded things. He was clearly very good at putting things about God in a way that everyone could understand. What I didn't realize when I started doing research for this episode with Joel was that we didn't actually know a lot about the life of Charles Spurgeon, mm-hmm. the, the famous preacher, this guy who was called at one point, I think, the Prince of Preachers, who was very well known and had all these great theological works. When I actually went to look down at his life and who he was as a person, I didn't know a whole lot about him. In this episode, we decided to bring to you an expert who could help you to learn more about the life of Charles Spurgeon.
1: In northern Kansas City, on the campus of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, there lies the biggest collection of Spurgeon's writings and personal books. I got up early one morning to drive and meet the director of the Spurgeon Center, Philip Ward. The library mainly consists of a large room, and there's several large study tables arranged throughout the library for people to use. Most of the library's books are in these well-lit display shelves surrounding the room. Some of the books are propped open and you can read the notes that Spurgeon wrote himself. Phil and I sit down in the middle of this large room for the interview. It's before the library is open, so we have the whole library to ourselves. Uh, My name is Philip Ort, and I have the
3: honor of serving here at the Spurgeon Library as the director of the Spurgeon Library here in Kansas City, Missouri at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So the Spurgeon Library really exists as kind of the chief collection of Spurgeon's books and a lot of little artifacts from his life and person. Um, And really the goal of the Spurgeon Library that you can kind of see behind me um, is really we have a solemn charge. Uh, We've been given the opportunity to have just under 6,000 books from Spurgeon's personal library here, um, the largest collection of his books anywhere in the world, and so we have this incredible opportunity to steward the life, the legacy, and the resources of Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, to help other people not merely look to Spurgeon, you know, because Spurgeon is a larger-than-life figure in many ways, but we want to help people not not merely look to Spurgeon and stop with him, but to look through Spurgeon
1: and, and to see Jesus Christ. The sermon that we're listening to later on is titled, A Call to the Depressed. And depression is something that Spurgeon was, was very familiar with throughout his life. As Troy and I looked into the history for this episode, there is this specific event that happened early on in Spurgeon's life that seems to have changed him. When he was speaking at an event, there was a fire scare. People thought the building was on fire and it led to this mass panic and several people ended up dying. I was curious to hear what a Spurgeon expert like Phil would have to say about this event and how depression affected Spurgeon's spiritual walk throughout the rest of his life.
3: So the Surrey Garden Music Hall fire in 1856, I believe October of 1856, that was a crushing blow for Charles. Um, up to this point he had been preaching very regularly to large crowds, 15,000 here, 10,000 there, at one point I think even 20,000, oftentimes on these hastily constructed raised platforms, um, which is just, that was just common then. But I mean the Surrey Garden Music Hall, um, that that was a constructed space and so you would think it would be safer. And so the issue then was there was someone who shouted out, fire, the galleys are giving way. Um, And this led to mass hysteria. There were thousands of people actually outside waiting to get in when this happened, so that kind of compounded the issue because it was hard for the crowds to disperse and a number of people were injured and a number of people were trampled to death. And frankly, Spurgeon almost quit the ministry over that. Um, He was so depressed for a number of months that he actually didn't even preach. Spurgeon's struggle with depression affected his spiritual life significantly, and it did so in two really profound ways. The first way that his depression affected his spiritual life was that it increased his love and dependence on Jesus Christ immensely, and it humbled him profoundly. Uh, You have to understand that Spurgeon is a prodigy by modern standards. Um, He read six fat books a week, So, this is kind of what we know. And, you know, you can imagine, what is a fat book? I don't know. Um, He had a photographic memory. He just had these things on recall. But for Spurgeon, he was just prodigious. Um, He worked incredibly long. He had just so many natural talents, natural abilities. And yet, his profound suffering, not just his spiritual depression, but his spiritual depression mixed with his physical suffering. I mean, Spurgeon had gout. He had arthritis, Um, he had lupus, and so he had all these things going for him. And there'd be times where he'd be laid out weeks, whole months at a time, unable to even walk into his pulpit, Um, just either laid up with the gout or writhing in agony or in pain. And oftentimes when these seasons would come, he'd be totally unable to, to fulfill his ministry. And so what he'd have to do is he'd just have to cast himself upon Christ. And so This actually had the effect for Spurgeon of it increased his love for Christ because he was forced to rely upon him, forced to depend on him, and it humbled him profoundly. Then this leads to the second thing, um, in that Spurgeon's suffering, one effect that it had on his spiritual life is it made him compassionate with suffering saints. And so Spurgeon really strongly believed in the sovereignty of God, in the providence of God, And really, I guess really one way to sum it up simply is that Spurgeon really lived something similar to the book of Job. You know, here Job is, this righteous man, he loses it all. God allows him to go through this trial, um, this really extended, terrible trial, and and yet at the end of it, um, we see the way that the book of Job comes full circle. And for Spurgeon, what this meant is he had an incredibly strong or high view of God's sovereignty, of his providence. And so he knew that all things, whether good or ill, nothing could touch his life unless it first passed through his father's hand. Now, that's one thing to say. You can tell someone that theologically, and that's true because that's biblical, but it's another thing to say that when someone is suffering acutely. And Spurgeon, because of his own great personal suffering, had such a, just a rich compassion for those who are suffering. That's one of the reasons why people love reading his sermons today is because when they read Spurgeon talking about suffering, talking about God's sovereignty, his providence, his rulership over the whole universe and all things, and every atom, you know, when they read Spurgeon saying these things, they know just how much Spurgeon suffered. Um, And so that's, I think, one of the chief impacts that it had that's a benefit to us who come after Spurgeon is that he helps us to really come to grips with these truths and to not dread them, but to cherish them, to not flee from them and hold up our hands and say, no, I don't, don't want to accept that right now, but to receive them just as the same God who is sovereign over all things, is the same God who sovereignly provides all our comforts and ensures our final deliverance. And so that was, that was a very important way in which Spurgeon's suffering and his depression you know, affected his ministry. So Spurgeon, when he wasn't writing his books, still wore a, just a large number of hats. Um, his favorite hats were husband and father. And this is one of the things that, the, I mean, the Spurgeon's life is so big, there's so many things that he did. His, I mean, his sermons are published in 40 languages. He started a seminary. He had 66 pair church ministries. So it's very easy for certain things to kind of get lost in the mix. Um, but I think Spurgeon's chief enjoyments uh, would be that he was a husband and a father. He loved his wife, Susanna. I mean, he just loved her so much. He, would, he loved to dote on her, frankly, and he would call her my wifey. And I tell you, you know, I've read a lot of Spurgeon's writing. And the sweetest sentences that he ever writes are always directed towards his wife. Um, it's just he had such a sweetness uh, and a love for Susanna that it was truly incredible. And the other thing is he, Spurgeon loved being a father, um, and in fact, as busy as Spurgeon was, and mind you, he was incredibly busy, uh, Spurgeon would take off, I think, most every Wednesday uh, to spend time with his boys, to really kind of get, be a hands-on, <laughs> present father. And so so I'm gonna state that and we're gonna say some of the things. But I mean, Spurgeon was the president of a seminary. He was the president and CEO of a various multitude of parachurch ministries that included two orphanages, you know, 17 almshouses for widows. All these things, there were so many things going on. And mind you, he was the pastor of the largest Protestant church in the world. At the time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church was the largest church in the world, at, Protestant church in the world at the time. And so just to think of all the burdens that are weighing on Spurgeon, all the pressures that are weighing on Spurgeon, and yet we see that outside of those things, when you extract Spurgeon from them, he loved being a husband, he loved being a father, and he just loved being out in nature and enjoying God's good creation.
2: Call to the depressed, Isaiah 52:2: Shake yourself from the dust, arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loosen yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I will not attempt at this time to decipher the history of the prophecy with which these words are associated. To the Hebrew nation, they were big with counsel, bright with hope. Apart, however, from the connection in which it stands, this verse supplies a pointed practical address of sterling value, not to be limited by any private interpretation. Such a charge was well fitted for Israel of old. Such counsel would be suitable to any church in a low condition. Such advice is equally adapted to any Christian who has fallen into a low state, who is groveling in the dust or among the ashes of Sodom he is told to rise from the ground and sit down upon a throne for Christ has made him a king and a priest he is admonished to unbind all the cords that are upon him that he may be free and happy in the Lord to those of you then who have sunk into the distressing plight my text contains a vigorous appeal let me try to interpret it first Notice the obvious fact. Some of God's true people are in a very sad condition. This is an important consideration to us just now. If just on the eve of battle, a commander should discover that an epidemic has broken out among his troops, he will be extremely anxious that any available remedy shall be tried. For if the soldiers are sick, how can they be expected to behave well on the morrow? So it will sometimes happen that when we mean to serve our master most, we are impeded in church action by the prevalence of some spiritual disease among the members of the church. Perhaps I may be the means tonight of finding out the sick ones and indicating their symptoms and who can tell. Perhaps this very night before you come to the table, the blessed remedy may be applied And at the table, while you are feasting with Christ, your souls may become perfectly restored. Sometimes the children of God fall into a grievous state as to their faith and their assurance of their own interest in Christ. They doubt whether they are Christians at all, whether their experience is genuine, whether they ever did really repent with a truly broken heart, whether they have received the precious faith, the faith of God's elect, at such times they question all their graces, and they are not able to get a satisfactory answer from anyone. At the same time, these people of God may be walking in outward consistency that everyone else thinks well of them. No one has any suspicion of them, but they grievously suspect themselves and are tormented with the fear that they have a name to live and are dead." I have known at such times that there will come at the back of this some terrible doubts about the substantial truths of our faith. What, you say? Doubts about the Godhead? Doubts about the Savior? Doubts about the world to come? Yes. Yes, and to the true people of God, they will hate these doubts, and in their hearts, they will still believe all the great fundamental and cardinal truths but yet they will be sore put to it and be frequently distressed. Thoughtful minds and men of reading will have philosophical doubts buzzing about them like mosquitoes on a summer day. Others who are ignorant of philosophy, and perhaps it is well that they are, will be troubled with doubts of a rougher, coarser quality. Although they will not permit them so to dwell in their hearts, so they will actively become unbelievers, yet they will be sorely distressed with questions which they cannot answer, with enigmas which they know not how to solve, and with strange intertwistings of difficulty which they know not how to untie. Perhaps, too, at such a time as this, there will be, over all, and worse than all, a state of dreadful indifference creeping over them. They want to feel, but cannot feel. They would gladly wring tears of blood out of their eyes, but not even an ordinary tear will drop. They want to be cut to pieces. They would welcome the most poignant sorrow, but they can only say, Tell someone today how much you love Jesus Christ. If anything is felt, tis only pain. To feel I cannot feel. In such cases, true believers are sure to resort to the extraordinary use of the means of grace. I mean, they will add to their ordinary use something more. Have you never been in such a state that the Bible has become uninteresting? Or the passages of Scripture that seemed to strike you were dreadful threats concerning your own coming doom? As you thought, not a word of comfort, not a syllable that makes glad your spirit. You have gone to prayer And the heavens have seemed to be brass. And worse still, your own heart seemed to be brass too. And you could not stir it up to anything like an intensity of desire. You did not wonder that you got no answer. You would have wondered if such a prayer as yours could be heard at all. And then you have gone up to the assembly of God's people, where at other times your heart has danced within you with holy joy. The minister was not changed. Perhaps at first you thought he was, but on the more attentive bearing, you noticed that there was the same truth of God and spoken in the same honest fashion, but you could not hear it as you once did. Clouds without rain and wells without water, all the ordinances seemed to be to you. And all the while, though you felt like you could not live like this and said, Dear Lord, and shall I always live at this poor dying rate? Yet somehow or other, you could not get out of it. You felt like once manacled as though a nightmare were upon you. You were distressed. You could not stir to break the spell. Your spirit cried out as best it would, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? But the worst of it was that you did not feel that you were wretched enough, and you did not seem to cry enough. You were afraid you would sink into a terrible lethargy, which would be the forerunner to a spiritual death altogether. Well, my dear friends, I should not wonder, but you brought this very much upon yourselves. If you are in this state tonight, I would exhort you to question whether this is not the result of what you have often been warned of. Perhaps you slackened in prayer. Perhaps your happier days, you grieved the Holy Spirit just when you were most joyful and happy in His love. It may be that you grew worldly, or perhaps a long succession of little things, none of which you noticed at the time, have contributed to swell the stream of your present distress. At any rate, whatever may be the cause of this state, I grieve that you are in it. Grieve for my own sake, for your sake. And for the sake of this church, and for the sake of the world around you. For my brothers and sisters, your testimony is to a great extent silenced, and your strength to bear it weakened. That face of yours, once happy, was a living advertisement of the gospel. Your cheerful temperament under trial was an invitation to sinners to come and find like joy. But now you are distressed And you go on mourning without the light of the sun. What can you do while you abide in such a state as that? You are like the bruised reed out of which no music can come. Or like the smoking flax that yields no light. But only a dolorous and nauseous smoke. I am grieved that it should be so. But because you are now to attempt a verbal testimony for Christ, it would be feeble and could not produce any great result. I remember when I began to teach in this Sunday school. I was very young in grace then, having said to the class of boys whom I was teaching that Jesus Christ saved all those who believed in him. One of the boys asked me the question, teacher, do you believe in him? I replied, yes, I hope I do, and he inquired again but are you not sure i had to look to myself to know what answer i should give the lad was not content with my repeating i hope so he would have it if you have believed in christ you are saved and i felt at that time i could not teach until i could say i know that it is so i must be able to speak of what I had tasted and handled of the good words of life. So, brothers, you will find that you only perplex those whom you gladly would persuade if by your doubts you provoke them to say, how can you expect us to believe at our mouth what you hesitate to seal with the witness of your own heart? Unless the joy of the Lord is your strength, your soul will breathe a heavy atmosphere, and your utterance will be checked. It is not choked by your misgivings. It is your confidence in Christ and the peace it brings you that helps you to speak to others as a true witness because you are an experimental witness of the power of true religion. Your verbal testimony, I say, is weakened. I fear to a great extent by the fog and vapor of your scruples the scruples of a conscience that droops and flags it is sad to think that while you're looking to your own soul in doubt whether you are saved or not you have but little energy to spare in caring about the souls of others indeed it is your first concern to see you tell somebody today how much you love jesus christ yourself are saved till that all-important matter is resolved. Your zeal for your neighbor's welfare is ill-timed. Why busy yourselves to keep other men's vineyards while your own is left to be overgrown with weeds? And then, my dear friends, another melancholy aspect of this disability is that all this while you are a detriment to your fellow Christians. It's hard enough to fight with Satan, but it is all the harder work for the army to have to carry so many sick folk with it, for it involves much more toil. You, whose faith is all but gone, are like the baggage of an army. You hinder the rapid march of the brave soldiers of the cross. How you depress others that are around you. Once your voice was that of a brave hero, and you encouraged the troops. But now you pine and cry, and make others hang their harps upon the willows, and learn the same doleful tune as your own. It is a sad thing. I do not condemn you, but I greatly pity you. And I also greatly pity the church of God and the cause of God that it loses so much by you, who ought in gratitude to Christ do so much for Him. Alas, that the people of God should be sunk into so mournful a condition There's a special expectation for them. This is pressed in all earnest. Hear it, O ailing Christian. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loosen yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now, my brother, content not yourself any longer with the state into which you have fallen. May the Holy Spirit come to you and prompt you to strike. Strive to get out of this condition, into one of happiness and strength. Let me try to encourage you a little, and may God enable you to the utmost. Remember, my dear friend, suppose I am now talking to you, alone. I almost wish I could grip your hand and look you close in the face. Remember from where you have fallen. Think of the peaceful hours you once enjoyed. Oh, your stony heart was not always so cold. The word of God was not always so dry. The sanctuary was not always so unprofitable. You have wrestled and prevailed. You know you have. You have pleaded with God and you have had the desire of your heart. You have communed with Christ and your soul has been like the chariots of Abinadab. Can you bear to think of this and not cry? return O holy dove return sweet messenger of rest can you once have known these things and had the flavor of them in your mouth without hungering and thirsting after them again think of them and perhaps while you are musing upon the past you may be helped by strong desires to return unto the place from which you went out think of the danger you are in the present who are they that are most likely to fall into open sin? They are those who walk at a distance from Christ. If you live in close communion with Jesus, you shall so share of your shepherd's company that you shall hear the wolf's howl, but shall not be likely to feel his fangs. I believe that when any professor falls into a filthy sin, it is not the beginning but the culmination of a process and growth in iniquity. The open sin comes at the heels of a long succession of neglected prayers, of neglected worship of God in the family, a neglect of all communion with Christ and negligence of every good thing. It is the fruit, not the seed of evil, which poisons the air and excites the public contempt. Beware then, O professor, You who have lost the light of God's countenance, beware, beware, I pray you, of that ill condition of soul which is the prolific parent of all distempers. Remember, too, that there is real cause for apprehension, that you never were safe. It is just possible that those doubts you feel are no insinuations of Satan, but the suggestions of enlightened conscience or even the whispers of the Holy Spirit. Unless you are indeed a Christian, in all probability, unless you now turn to God, you will become the willing servitor of the devil. Unless you now, with full purpose of heart, seek Christ, perhaps the time has come when you will turn aside, like Balaam for reward, or perish in the gainsaying of Korah. In some of those shapes in which wicked men have perished, you may despondingly or presumptuously rush on to destruction and precipitate your final doom. Beware again, I say, O cold professor. In God's name, beware of trifling when you have had so much reason to tremble. My dear friend, I would put another thought into your mind which may help you. Perhaps you may think it is rather hampering than helping you, and tends more to depress than to deliver you. Remember how justly you might now to be left to your devices. You became carnally secure. You sinned away the light of God's countenance. You grieved His Spirit. What if He were now to say, He is given unto idols, let Him alone? What if from this day the Spirit should no more strive with you? I do but mention this to awaken you, my brother, if you are insensible. You know how sometimes a surgeon fears that a man should sleep himself to death, and he will even drive pins into him, or make him walk and drag him about the chamber so as to awaken him. I would say anything, however sharp, if I might, but wake you out of your lethargy. I know you would welcome it, and in due time thank me for the severity of the operation. But I shall refrain, for I think there is a better way than this. I want you to arise and shake yourself from the dust, my poor desponding friend. Because if the worst is the worst, and you are no Christian, no true believer, yet come now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as snow. I must close with this remark. I know there are many of God's people in the state I have been describing. I have the pain sometimes of trying to cheer them. I only hope that what I have said tonight may be blessed of God to them. I fully anticipate it. Here then is the practical point. When you are converted, strengthen your brothers and sisters. Look out for those who are in the same state as you have been and be very tender towards them. As you know their case and have traversed that howling desert, you will be able to direct them. I have described your case because I fear that I have sometimes been on the verge of it myself. I have found recovery by a fresh resort to the love of Christ and a simple renewal of my trust in Him. I can therefore enter into your feelings and ask you to try the same remedy. After you have found the remedy to be a good one, it is but a small return, and certainly it is due from you to tell others how you have been restored. Some of you, beloved, Have never been thus carried into captivity. I pray to God that you may never be. There is no necessity for it. But let me entreat you to walk very tenderly with your God. We serve a jealous God. He will wink at many an act of insubordination. Done by his enemies. The one tenth of which. If done by his favored ones. His elect. His darlings. He will hide His face from them at once. You only have I known all the peoples of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Says He not, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten? A sinner may go on wantonly, unrebuked. He may add house to house and field to field. He may think of himself as secure. God will deal with him in the next world. But the heir of salvation is under a discipline of divine love. And God will deal with him in this world. And among the chastisements of departure from Christ will be the loss of comfort. The loss of power to do good. I know not what other affliction added thereunto in his soul or his circumstance. Dear brothers and sisters, walk carefully then. While you have the light of God, walk in the light. O prize the sweet love of Christ. Never, never let it go. Say unto your soul, when Christ is your heart, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not, nor wake my love until He pleases. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose. And by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up, nor wake my love until he pleases. Introduce no rival's love and no worldliness. Fall into no inconsistencies, but pray for grace that the holy jealousy you may still dwell in the light of God and find favor in his eyes. And being thus kept near to God, and being strong in the power of his might, Come and give back the strength to Him from whom you derived it. Stand up for Christ. I believe we are never happier than when we have plenty to do. Idleness is the mother of vexation. A Christian who does little for Christ until he is prevented from doing it by suffering will, as a rule, be a miserable man or woman. You active Christians, active in body and nimble in spirit, You joyous Christians who walk in the light of God's countenance. Work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. Let us pledge each other tonight that we will now seek the good of Zion. Members of this church, none of you be unfaithful to the loyalty which you owe to Christ in this. The hour when we seek to press forward as one man in the battle of our master. I would stand side by side with you to take my share. But what can one do if he works alone? My brothers in office will not be backward. I know, but what can we do? Keep step with us, my brothers and sisters, in pleading for souls, in proclaiming the gospel, in seeking to win the many to the knowledge of the Savior. And the Lord will bless us. Even our own God will bless us. Shaking ourselves from the dust and breaking off the bands of our own sloth. God will come with his crown of benediction and place it on his church's head. And when we get that coveted prize, let us hold fast that no man takes it from us. Let us go forward as a church in union and in unwearied service until he shall come, whose well done shall be our best reward. The Lord bless you. And at his table, may the King's sweet spikenard give forth a delightful perfume to every spiritual heart. Amen.
1: I would like to thank Philip at the Spurgeon Center once again Uh, Troy and I, we we do do a lot of research when it comes to uh, researching and planning these episodes, uh, but we are by no means historians or or all-around experts in this field, and it was a real pleasure just to be able to sit down with someone who who is a a bona fide expert uh, on the life of Charles Spurgeon and just kind of hear him talk about uh, his life and his effect and and what he contributed towards society. Uh, We appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Wayne Geiger. Uh, Also, we'd like to give a special thanks out to the Spurgeon Library. The transcript for today's sermon can be found on our website at revivethoughts.com.
0: If you enjoy this episode of Revive Thoughts, make sure to tell a friend, let others know about what we're doing here, and please be sure to share us on social media. And while you're on social media, you can find us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, find us on Twitter. Please feel free to send us a message. Tell us what you're thinking. And if there's a sermon or a preacher or something you would like to hear on our show, let us know. We would love to hear feedback from you so that we can make the show even better. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the In Between podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith and everything in between.
1: On the In Between podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
0: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
1: how to not hate your in-laws,
0: ways to save money for your next vacation,
1: and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships.
0: Join us, Daniel
1: and Christina M,
0: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected and joy-filled marriage and family.
1: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.